Hello and welcome to Stream It, the podcast where we explore movies, old favorites, new favorites, and every so often movies we love just a little bit less. This is season two, episode eight, our season two finale, and I promise we will not leave you on a cliffhanger. We're going to wrap everything up nice and neat. And today we are traveling back to 1993, but also (laughs) traveling back a lot further than that to talk about uh, Steven Spielberg's classic Jurassic Park. As always, my name is Zachary Ortz. I am one of your co-hosts, and I am joined this week, just like each week preceding this week, by my good buddy, Matthew Watkins. Hey, Matty, how you doing? Doing good. How about you? I am doing well. This is this is going to be fun. I don't actually... We haven't really talked that much about the movie, and I don't actually even know how many times you've seen it so why don't we go ahead and jump right in and talk about our personal history how how many times have you seen this movie and i assume you have seen this movie prior to this past week yeah i've seen this movie uh, a bunch of times uh, probably like 15 to 20 times something like that mm-hmm. yeah it's uh it was a repeat rewatch i mean that might be underestimating things uh i've also seen every other uh, film in the jurassic park fr- franchise not only have I uh, seen all the films multiple times, and uh, but I have also read the books, uh, all the mm. books, and I played so much of the original Jurassic Park video game on Super Nintendo. Um, <laughs> so I have a lot of experience with that and have like Jurassic Park merch or had it when I was a kid and things like that. So... Very familiar with this movie. This is one of my very beloved movies. It's near the top of my near the top of my list, and it's one that I've come back to a bunch of different times. But the the one thing that was a little bit different is that uh, my daughter Addison had not seen this film, or if she mm-hmm. had, she was like not paying attention at all. She had no idea what was happening or what was coming up. Uh, whereas Ethan had seen it, so uh, that was a little bit of a fun experience, and we all watched it together. Uh, on Sunday night, and it was quite fun. That's great. Do you remember when the first time you would have seen it was? Did you see it in theaters? You would have been I, pretty young. I was nine years old. Uh, I remember, or I would have been eight years old, actually, uh, because I would have turned nine probably a month and a half after this. And I remember the day that I saw Jurassic Park vividly. You know how those, those there's those days that you remember mm-hmm. from when you were a kid? And, like, most days are kind of a blur. But then there's those one days that just it sticks out so clearly. This was one of those days. It was like a foundational memory for me of cinema. It was one of the first films that I remember going into in the theater and just being completely blown away. Uh, by the movie and the the other ones that kind of fit that were animated films but those were kind of made for kids this was the first one that I saw in the theater that was made for adults that really just just knocked my socks off for me at the time it was similar to like when I had seen Star Wars at home on video and this felt like that kind of experience but in the movie theater um, I remember uh, the restaurant that we went to the day that I uh, uh, the day that we went to go see this movie. We went to a Chinese restaurant before we went to go see Jurassic Park, so we had to hurry and rush out so that we could make it in time for the movie. <laughs> um, and then I just like remember sitting in my grandma's house. We were visiting my grandma's house at the time when we went to go see it. 
and I remember sitting in the room like upstairs in my grandma's house uh, that night and just playing the movie over over and over and over again in my head and not being able to sleep at all that night. And uh, so it was a pretty, pretty formational uh, movie that I remember seeing. And it was like a big foundational time in my life as well, because uh, we had just moved from Alabama back out west and we were visiting, visiting my grandparents and then we were going down into Las Vegas. So it was a new time period in my life. And my sister had just been born like a month before. Um, mm. And so it, it's all of this was all co- contributed to make this a very formational movie for me to see and affected the way that I view cinema in general and really made me fall in love with movie theaters. So that's my experience with the film. Yeah. So my I, I kind of could not be more different than you. Friend of the podcast, Evan, he's in a very similar boat to you. This is maybe his number one or number two, some, somewhere in the top five movies for him of all time. But prior to this, I had seen this movie exactly once. Oh, and wow. I had watched it. It was a movie that we owned on VHS and... My, I, I, I couldn't really pinpoint when I saw it, but the best I could figure out is I think I was somewhere between, my guess is like 10 or 11, so probably 97 or 98 would have been, would have been the year. And it was a night when my parents weren't home and I put it in and I watched it and I found some parts of it kind of scary or maybe pretty scary there was one particular scene that we'll talk that i remembered and that was just about all that i remembered of the movie and i didn't like i didn't particularly like it it was not it was and i didn't dislike it either it was just like okay yeah i watched that and so i've never really had cause to revisit it until now so it's kind of I'm sure there are people out there who are in their mid-30s who have never seen this movie, but my viewing for this, I feel like, is probably about as close as you can get, or at least there's probably not a ton of other people who can get that close, so... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's wild. Um, I did not realize that. Uh, like I said, we've never really chatted about this film very much. Uh, it had such a big impact on me at the time, and over time, I've just... Uh, I wouldn't call myself like a fan of it uh, or of the franchise so much, even though I, I watched them all just because, you know, I like dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's in the years as I've gotten older and had so many other films kind of displace it in my memory of like uh, films that I love. It's it's not one that I talk about a lot, but it is it did hit me at that time where it is one of my formational memories of like my love of cinema. So it holds a very special place because of that, even though it hasn't held that same like place of love for uh, just films and for the film specifically over time. Yeah, that that makes sense. Oh, and I should say that I have not read the book. I have not read Jurassic Park, but I have read a lot of Michael Crichton. And I think it, it sort of fell into 
that range for me where I really enjoy Michael Crichton books, but it was like, well, I've seen the movie and I maybe even started the book uh, a couple times and it was just like, it was too hard for me to, to, to get through the book with, with the movie in my head. There, there have not been a lot of times where I've watched something and then gone back and read the book. This movie might actually be the reason that I work so hard to read a book before I watch the movie because I just found going back to be so difficult. Huh, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's I didn't read the book until after I had seen the film. And I read it through I've read it I think three times and and it was all right afterwards. I just read it over and over again. Um and I had my copy of Jurassic Park that was, you know, just worn and beaten from carrying it in my backpack to school and reading it and I remember getting yelled at by teachers because I was reading something that was too adult for me because it you know it uses a lot of it uses a lot of language a lot of you know f-words and things like that and and I I was a little nine-year-old kid carrying this book to school with me to elementary school I I would I mean I had the same experience I I didn't get yelled at by teachers but I had a lot of teachers look at the books that I was reading and say, I would not let my kid who is your age be reading this book. A lot of Stephen King and then also a good amount of John Grisham, which does sort of tie into the time period here. So I think we can move on and set ourselves in 1993. And one of the really astonishing things about this year is if you go and look at a list of movies that were released in this year, it is just absolutely mind-blowing. And some of it is that we happen to be in the generation where a lot of these movies, even the ones that maybe are not as critically regarded, are movies that are known very well amongst our generation, and so they're movies that are referenced a lot. But just to quickly run down some of the hits or some of the movies that I was like, oh my goodness, that came out this year. Obviously, we have Jurassic Park and then same Steven Spielberg, same director. Also, Schindler's List was released this year. And then a few, uh, looks like I have three sort of comedic classics, Groundhog Day, Sleepless in Seattle, and Mrs. Doubtfire. And then there's also... Philadelphia, which I believe won the Oscar this year, uh, won the Oscar the following year in 1994. And then there's Nightmare Before Christmas, which is, I don't know, would you call that one a, a cult classic or is that, I feel like it's kind of culty. Um, yeah, we can call it a cult classic. A little, it might be a little, it might have been a little bit more yeah. popular on release than a normal cult classic, but it's definitely p- picked up a bit of cult yeah, status. And then just time. a few more. The Fugitive was out this year, which I believe, <laughs> if it weren't for Jurassic Park, would have dominated the, the charts this year. It was number two, right? Uh, I believe so. It's also a film that I love. So not as much as uh, some of these others on the list, but I, I have watched that a few times as well. Yeah, and then there were two John Grisham films that were released this year. It, two of the ones that I think are uh, better, like a little higher regarded. They have a little more critical esteem. The Pelican Brief and then also The Firm. And then a few more. These ones, I think, do sort of fall into the 
cult classic realm, at least for our generation. There's The Sandlot and Robin Hood Men in Tights. And then the movie that gets quoted to me the most, uh, Hocus Pocus. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And all three of those kind of fit into that cult classic territory. Um, the Sandlot is just kind of like uh, that millennials film that really fits in with a lot of people's childhood. Uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights was you know, a classic comedy from the time period. Uh, had Dave Chappelle in it. And so, uh, you know, it just gets brought up a lot and then hocus pocus is the one that scared everybody's pants off and just you know uh, sticks in everybody's memory wait is that true um people found I, I don't that know movie scary well i think that there's a bunch of millennials that watched it when they were like eight and so it scared them if that makes oh, wow. sense we, like i've talked I, to a lot I of just men- watched it for the first time uh a little it's, over a year ago so it's <laughs> not a scary movie uh, no. but I think that a lot of people watched it. Uh, you, you hear a lot of millennials that talk about that film and they're like, yeah, I really found that one scary. And you know, I don't know. I find it fascinating because it's clearly not intended to be that scary, but when you're eight, you know, things can scare you pretty easily. Yeah. So anyway, that's, <laughs> that's the rundown on films this year that stood out to me. I don't, I'm sure there are, cinephiles or film historians who have ready answers for this but it is just like if you were picking a year for the greatest year for movies like i have to imagine this would be on the short list it is just an astounding amount of movies that have continued to have legs now uh what three a little under three decades later yeah, yeah, a lot of really good ones. One of my favorites, uh, Groundhog Day. I just love that film, and it's inspired so many, uh, so many. Um, I don't spinoffs is not the right. So many imitators over the years. Uh, it's kind of created its entirely own genre of film with the time loop films, and then uh, there just a bunch of others that are so so highly regarded. Yeah. Okay, you you had some events that you had pulled from 1993 that you wanted to talk about. I guess we did. We are continuing our tradition of <laughs> picking movies <laughs> that came out in uh, years where a new president took office. So this is the beginning of Bill Clinton's first term. Uh, yes. But what else did you have have on your list that you wanted to talk about? So one of the ones was the probably the biggest news event from the year. It was one that was big enough that it popped up on my radar, like as a as a little you know eight year old kid. Uh, was the Waco the events of Waco, Texas, uh, mm-hmm. and the standoff and all of those things. And another big event that happened around the same same time period was the World Trade Center bombing. And so there was a bunch of uh, events tied in with those things. And people would have been thinking of those at the time that they went to the movie theater. But the really interesting ones that I think tie into this film in particular, the day before this film released. <laughs> I couldn't believe this when I saw you put this in the show notes. The day before Jurassic Park was released, uh, these scientists uh, had a discovery um, and it was published in in a paper. So, you know, they didn't literally discover that day, but it was published on the day before Jurassic Park released. A discovery of a 135 million-year-old million weevil DNA. Uh, so there's yeah, a weevil, 135 cool. million years uh, old, and they were able to pull out DNA from that, from that weevil. 
it's interesting. I went and read an entire article about this, uh, this weevil. And so I know way more about prehistoric weevil DNA than I ever knew before. And they originally had, like, so much promise, this weevil, that they were pulling the DNA out of and tied in with Jurassic Park. Uh, the scientists at the time period credit Jurassic Park to getting people way more hyped on this scientific study than they would have otherwise. And people thought they were going to be able to, like, extract the DNA from this weevil and, like, clone weevils from the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, it just like in Jurassic Park, and this is a real science phenomenon, the, the intersection of these two things that they happen to come out. Uh, but it turned out like years later that the DNA had degraded too much to where they could extract it enough. And then because of this, they discovered that uh, DNA only has a half-life of 512 years. And so any kind of like prehistoric DNA is going to uh, decay at a rate that's uh, that's too rapid for that kind of ancient DNA to hold together well enough to clone something. And so because of this and because of the hype around Jurassic Park, it led to the scientific discovery that you would not be able to pull off Jurassic Park. Um, and all of that intersection kind of caused the science to figure this out, uh, which is, I don't know, it's kind of cool and, and interesting. Yeah, it, it does kind of feel like there was something sciencey floating around in the zeitgeist because, I mean, this is, like, obviously it's not like there were not science fiction movies before this, but I think Michael Crichton is pretty unique, or at least was pretty unique at the time, in that he went through a lot of pains to really make his science feel grounded. And I think, you know, if you have uh, experience in any number of those scientific fields, I think I'm sure you can poke any number of holes in them. But at least for lay people, I think it makes them interested in science and it makes it feel like they're grounded in science. And I think because he did do a lot of homework and has a has a background that lent itself to doing that. Um, But one of the things that I thought was kind of cool was September 10th was the first episode of Bill Nye the Science Guy. Bill Nye the Science Guy. Yeah. Woo. What a landmark time for science that was. Yeah. Between these two things. Uh, I find the Bill Nye the Science Guy thing particularly interesting because it's kind of the second great science communicator um, after after what's his name that did Cosmos. You're going to have to remind me. Uh, uh, Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan, one of my favorite people in history, and my brain okay. just completely d- uh, didn't remember his name. Uh, but yes, Carl Sagan. Um, and uh, Bill Nye was kind of the, the big uh, second great science communicator, especially since his videos were played constantly uh, through the 90s in every you know elementary school and high school, uh, middle school classroom. I have seen so many Bill Nye the Science Guy episodes just sitting in those classes. Yeah, and it's, I mean, we, we we didn't watch a lot of television in our home. So, like, there's a lot of television touchstones from our generation that I just don't have. But there was no escaping Bill Nye, I think, as you said, because he was played so prevalently in the classroom. Yes, exactly. And you had mentioned before that it felt like there was a big uh, science kind of zeitgeist at the time period. And this actually a documented effect. It's something called the Jurassic Park effect. Um, oh, and, really? <laughs> uh, yeah. The, so in the years after Jurassic Park, it led to such a tremendous increase in people studying um, 
genetics and paleontology that it, it created this huge bubble in those fields that you can measure and they measured it as the Jurassic Park effect uh, directly as a result of this film. Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's pretty fascinating. You had one other uh, speaking of science, there was just a little little invention that happened this year that you yeah, it was small. It didn't really, you know, it was small, kind of flew under the radar, um, barely impacted some things. You see, like, a little bit of it in this film, which is something called the World Wide Web, mm, the Internet. Like spiders? <laughs> oh, the Internet. Yeah, the Internet. Yeah. Um, so the Internet was, it, it existed before this, and the World Wide Web technically existed, but the, in 1993, this is when it really became public. So it's, it's when people had access to... Um, it's when a lot of places kind of started websites up and you have websites that still to this day existed at that time period. Um, one of those websites happens to be the internet movie database. One of my most frequently used websites went online in 1993. One of the earliest, uh, really popular websites, um, also like Bloomberg.com uh, and things like that, that have stuck around to this day. But this is uh, 1993 is kind of seen in history as the beginning of the World Wide Web. Yeah, and it's not like, I mean, this podcast would still be doable without IMDb, but I don't think there's been a single episode that has been done without referencing IMDb. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know that it was, I just, I can't imagine doing it without IMDb. It is, I, it's, for a long period of time, it was my most visited website. It is not at this point, but it's just, as someone who is a film buff, I use it so frequently. You know, it's I type I on my URLs and IMDb auto, auto fills in. And then the, the last thing that I wanted to talk about from this year, and I just noted it down because I saw it as I was scrolling through the list of events. And I think this movie has kind of an interesting relationship with feminism and... It's one adult woman character, but they had on March 11th, Janet Reno became the first woman attorney general in the U.S. And on April 28th, so this would have been, uh, there was an executive order. This would have been President Bill Clinton, one of his uh, early executive orders that stopped the stopped a prohibition from the Air Force that didn't allow women to fly warplanes. Yeah, that's a pretty big deal. And then, you know, just a couple of months later, uh, Don't Ask, Don't Tell would go into place, but uh, we don't have to focus on that one. Yeah, and 1992, the year that was previous, it was known at the time period as the year of the woman because so many women had been uh, voted into office. Mm -hmm. So that's the previous year, but I think it connects to this point is... I think of people at the time period um, viewed this year as like a huge major stepping stone for equality for women uh, and women having uh, power and access to uh, political power like they had not had before. And those gains quickly evaporated, um, especially with uh, the reactionary uh, forces that were reacting to um to Hillary Clinton and then with the uh, Monica Lewinsky scandal. Um, and though I hate to call it the Monica Lewinsky scandal because, you know, uh, it's, <laughs> it's really it sucks to name it after scandal, Monica. Yeah. yeah, exactly. The Bill Clinton, uh, the Bill Clinton scandal. 
but I don't know. It's it does. I think this film also reflects this kind of. It feels like it was reflecting this kind of optimism for the time period, but that without addressing the major underlying factors. Yeah, and the, the this movie is definitely cognizant of that. Like it definitely knows that, and it sort of points it out. And I think there are a couple points that I was even surprised by the way they sort of called called it out. And then there are also a couple missteps that we'll we'll get into. For sure. Uh, do you have anything else you want to say about 1993? Or should we talk about our reaction to this movie? Let's go into our reaction. All right. I'll go first since it was my first, essentially first time viewing it. And I don't really know what I expected from this movie. I think I kind of had low expectations somewhat just because it's so hyped and so beloved and I had seen it once and was sort of mad on it but I really loved my viewing of this film I thought like I just had a really great time I'd put it into like the solid like probably high b plus or maybe low a minus range and the that being said there for how much i love this movie and i think i probably enjoy it more than jaws i probably had a better time watching it than i did jaws even though i think jaws is maybe like a more tightly constructed movie there for a movie that i loved so much there are a lot of things that like as i've been thinking about it over the last couple days i'm like oh that's actually a little strange that they did it that way or there's stuff that's like a little hard for me to justify or stuff that I I just can't quite figure out why they did it the way they did it and so it's kind of a unique it's been a really unique experience to have something that I've that I really loved so much and I wouldn't say any of those things that I've been thinking about have hampered my hampered hindered my enjoyment or my memory of the movie it's just i've just been really excited to get into it and talk about it excellent yeah is i'm glad to hear that you enjoyed it so much um i enjoyed it a lot too as i watched it this time and you know i it, it was really fun to watch it uh with my kids it they got into it quite a bit and it was funny because we sat down to watch it and Ethan had just this past month actually gotten a jurassic park t-shirt t-shirt <laughs> and he you know, just because he thought it looked cool. And then he happened to be wearing it, and we noticed it, like, as the film was starting. And then Addison was, you know, quite involved and laughing at all the parts where you're supposed to laugh and uh, scared at all the parts where you're supposed to be scared. And so I kind of lost myself in watching this one a little bit, and I really enjoyed it a lot. As you said, there's there's a lot that, uh, as I've been thinking about this film, that a lot of thoughts about it, um, a lot of things that I've thought over the years. I know that people kind of come around in cycles on this one of whether they you know, thought it was good or whether they're more critical of it, but I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed this watch, and I'm excited to talk about it. I, I should also add that there is, and I'm guessing this is something that will become more common with your kids with the generation right below us but there's a very strange feeling when you're watching a movie that 
is for the first time or essentially the first time as it was for me that is gifed so often because oh, yes. there I mean I don't know even Princess Bride, I don't know that there are as many gifs floating around out there as there are of this movie. <laughs> it just creates such a strange feeling of deja vu of like, oh, I intimately know the next second and a half or two seconds of what is going to visually happen on screen right now. <laughs> it's a very surreal experience. Yeah, I get that because I had that with The Shining. Mm, right, but of course. It's yeah. So, but yeah, this one has so many gifts all over the place, and you know, especially all the Ian Malcolm glamour shots and whatnot that that you see constantly on the internet. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. Let's uh, move on and talk about personnel and stats here. You pulled the the box office numbers for this, so why don't you give us the rundown on those? Yeah, so this movie was made for a budget of $63 million, which at the time period was a huge, massive budget. Um, If you compare that to a budget nowadays, that would be like a pretty big mid-list film. So just for comparison with the inflation, uh, $63 million would still be a big film, big-ish. At the time period, it was huge. And then it had a marketing budget of $65 million. So more of the entire production bucket budget. Huge marketing budget. And it was everywhere. And just a little aside, one of the marketing strategies that they used with this is that as this was, I remember all the marketing because it was all over the place. You Like everyone wanted to go see Jurassic Park because you saw constant things of it. But they never showed the dinosaurs in any of the marketing so they oh, always wow. hit them and if you saw them you only got like glimpses of the t-rex's foot right mm. so you never actually saw what they were going to look like you only saw like a little thing from the side or like an eye or things like that um and because of that you just you had to go to the theater to watch this movie so it opened to 47 million dollars on opening weekend uh, and then had a domestic run of 357 million dollars and a worldwide release of 912 million at the time it released as the biggest film ever released it surpassed uh everything else and by a bit of a margin it was huge and um it has been re-released in theaters four times since then and made 122 million so it's up at a billion point oh four something like that uh it is one of very few movies that have crossed a billion though it needed a few re-releases in order to cross that line yeah, just ab- absolutely huge. And one of the things that like I I was thinking is like, man, there were so many movies that were released this year and it still did so well. Um but and we didn't mention it before, but when I was running down the um what had happened this year, there was a jobs report where I believe the unemployment rate either hit like an all-time low or like a local a local low so the lowest it had been in a long time and i would imagine that contributes to people being able to go to the movies even in a movie that was so densely packed with movies that were very popular you know you can go and have a good time at the summer blockbuster 
Yeah, and I think that also at that time period, I don't have good data on this. This is just me remembering and talking it over with my parents. But I think at that time period, there was this kind of move towards theaters being a little bit more accessible. Like there were more theaters being built. Mm. uh, And so more people were going to the movie theater than they had in the previous few years uh, during like the VCR era. So there was this kind of resurgence of going to the movie theater. Yeah, that... That makes sense. Um, ooh, I have... So this movie, it did not win the Academy Award. Uh, no. Because <laughs> why would we Why would we give our serious award to science fiction trash? But it did win the Hugo Award. And so I was curious if any other movies that we've covered for Stream It had won Hugo Awards. And it turns out one of them has, and there are three Gasp. others that were nominated. Do you can tell that we're genre fans in that that face in that case? So yeah, which uh, which which movies would you guess are nominated, and which one would you think has won the Hugo for whatever that this is category tricky. is? Um, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna have to think for just a second, uh, but. I'm looking at a list of the films that we've covered. So if I would say something that has been nominated for the Hugo, uh, I would guess Dune was nominated for a Well, I guess maybe that's too soon. Yeah, so maybe that that's one's too soon, guess. yeah. Uh, I would guess The Matrix has been nominated for a Hugo. That's Is one that of accurate? them, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, I would guess that... Let's see. Do, 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 do. Um, I would guess that um, Toy Story was nominated for a Hugo. Yep. So one more. And I would guess that Inside Out was nominated for a Hugo. Inside Out was not nominated for a Hugo. Oh, no. I feel so ashamed. And um, and I have to tell you, ahead. you're missing the one that won. I'm missing the one that won. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? Was it The Shining? It was not The Shining. I was surprised that one wasn't on there. Yeah, it's at that time period, I don't know that um, the big movies like that were getting nominated that on that often well and um, i don't know that horror like the hugos have become a little more inclusive of horror i think but i think yeah maybe not in so was it the princess bride it was yeah okay that makes sense yeah yeah so cool 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 that's fascinating yeah i thought that was that was kind of fun i was shocked yeah. that the matrix did not win the hugo that year yeah it's i think it I'm trying to remember. There was so much that came out at that time period, but I don't know what won the Hugo, so I don't know what to compare it to. But uh, hold on, I will. I will tell you. Um, while you're thinking of that, uh, one of the things that I found interesting: this movie crossed a billion dollars uh, when it was re-released. I think in like 2016 or 2017, something like that. But it is one of uh, it is one of only 47 movies to ever make a billion dollars worldwide. Um, and not only is it one of only 47 movies, it is the oldest movie, uh, to cross a billion dollars, uh, worldwide that it it is, um, though, unless I, you know, I didn't check specifically if star Wars did do it itself. Uh, but there are not that many movies that have crossed a billion dollars. And this is one of the ones that has done it. And there are very few movies from the time period, I mean, you're looking at, like, Titanic and Toy Story as the other uh, things on the list that are 
even in the same ballpark. Yeah, and it's worth noting, I believe the Jurassic Park broke a box office record that would stand until Titanic in 1997. So it would last for four years, which, uh, you know, thanks to inflation, I don't think they normally last four years. Four years is a bit of time, but you've had some periods of time where it's lasted longer, mm. like um, eight to ten years and things like that. So there, what usually happens is you'll have a period of time where it's long, and then you'll have a period time of time where the box office records get broken, uh, several of them in a row. Uh, we had a period of time like that in like 2014 to 2017, and now you, or 2000 until Endgame, whatever those records were. And now you're seeing a real drop off, and uh, it's probably going to be a while until you hit another movie that gets as big as Avengers Endgame. But uh, it was going through that kind of time period up until Jurassic Park, and then you had kind of a four-year off period, and then kind of like some starts and stops until until the release of Star Wars Episode One. Yeah. So the the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. This is the year two thousand. So the the Matrix year. Here are the other nominees. You had being John Malkovich did not win. The Iron Giant did not win. The Matrix did not win. And The Sixth Sense, which did not win. And then what won was Galaxy Quest. Oh, well, fair enough. It's a, Galaxy Quest is an incredible film. Uh, and it's the kind of th- film that would appear, appeal to Hugo voters. So that actually makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, that all checks out. All right, let's talk about a few people here quickly before we move into the talking about some specific scenes. We don't need to spend a ton of time on Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg needs no introduction. I think if you uh, go and look at a best directors of all time list, he's going to be normally in the top five, if not the top three or top four or top two or top one. Uh, But I did just quickly want to run down what led up to Jurassic Park, because he was an established director by by this point. This was his 16th feature film as a director, and that includes, I guess, 14th feature film. So that includes a movie made on a shoestring budget of like 500 bucks, and then a (laughs) movie that was direct release to video. So his, to TV, yes. To TV, I'm sorry. Uh, so his first film released in cinemas was in 1973. That's Ace, Eli, and Roger of the Skies. And then I'm not going to run down the rest of his films, but I did want to run down the big releases that he had. So Jaws in 1975, that was sort of his big breakout blockbuster hit. And then Close Encounters of the Third Time, Third Kind in 1977. 1981, he had Raiders of the Lost Ark. 1982, he had E.T. 1985, The Goonies. 1991, Hook. And then 1993, Jurassic Park. And there were, you know, uh, several other Indiana Jones movies in there and a bunch of others as well. Yep. It's a great run of movies. You know, he was really in form at this time period. He'd had, um, what is that, three movies or just two? Just two movies that were the biggest box office success of all time when they came out. 
um, with Jaws and E.T. and then again with Jurassic Park. Uh, and Raiders of the Lost Ark, I think, came pretty close to that. But, you know, all of these ones were uh, very big financial successes. And most of them are somewhat well regarded as critical successes as well. Though uh, uh, Steven Spielberg is one of these directors that does so well at the box office is generally beloved by general audiences. And then film critics tend to see him as just like um, a hack appealing to a lower common denominator. Yeah, a hack, something like that. Uh, uh, which I think is ridiculous. I think he's great. I actually, I misread my notes. So I said The Goonies was in 19, 1985, which is true, but he didn't direct that film. He was just EP, and then I think he also did some writing on it. His 1985 film that he directed was The Color Purple. So, sorry about that. Oh, okay, The Color Purple, yeah. yeah. You can stop so emailing us. We fixed which it. was also a very big success uh, because Oprah was in it. So, um, you know, it did quite well. Mm-hmm. Did you want to say anything else about Spielberg? Yeah, I did. Um, he Spielberg, Steven Spielberg is the best performing director in the box office uh, mm-hmm. of all time. And it's not particularly close. The next closest behind him is the Russo brothers who had, you know, like uh, all these Marvel movies, including Avengers Endgame. Uh, and they are $4 billion behind. Uh, <laughs> $4 billion behind. Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg has a movie in the theaters right now today that is uh, it is running as a box office success uh, with The West Side Story. It's just incredible how well his films have done over time. And this year was the peak of his success with Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's not... Like, obviously, he has a penchant for genre fiction for, uh, I think mostly science fiction i don't know if there are any big fantasy movies on here but the like the breadth of what he does is really so huge because like we haven't even mentioned some of the stuff that comes later he'll do saving private ryan and uh what five years and then catch me if you can several years after that and then a decade after that is lincoln and right before that is war horse and then right now he just has a little remake of you know only one of the most famous movie musicals of all time west side story so it's it it, you know i i assume having varied interests is one of those things that is able to keep you going and maybe i mean i guess catch me if you can was extremely successful i don't know that any of those have reached quite the heights of his genre films but uh, yeah, <laughs> it's a lot. Well, and one of the things that I saw in the research of this one is at this time period, what Steven Spielberg had wanted to do was he wanted to do a film about the Holocaust. And he really wanted to, um, you know, he wanted to make something that could really impact people. Um, and he was going for something very artistic uh, and something a little bit different than than what he would normally do. Um, and he kind of has these periods where he does this. And so this is what he was looking to do. He went and talked to the studio and they said, listen, you can't do a Holocaust film because no one's going to go watch it. But we will let you make this movie if you do Jurassic Park. Um, and he had it kind of on his slate. And he was like, fine, I'll do Jurassic Park. I'm going to make it. It's going to be amazing. He he was excited to do it. Don't, don't get me wrong about that. He had it. He had gotten the rights to it uh, before the book was even published. Yeah. Um, and 
so you know they they knew this was going to do well but they knew it was going to be a hit and so they wanted him to do it before he filmed uh he before he did uh schindler's list um which is kind of ironic because he actually started Schindler's List before Jurassic Park was done, and he was getting like all the special effects stuff while he was in Europe shooting uh, Schindler's List, and he would receive those special effects shots, um, and uh, like they'd show them to him, and he'd okay them like up or down, uh, and then send them back, and uh, that's how the last bit of this film got made. Good thing he didn't accidentally mess it up and splice some some dinos into Schindler's List or, you know, splice some Nazis into, into the park. Yeah. That would have been, that would have been, been embarrassing. Yes. Maybe someone needs to create the Jurassic list or Schindler's park mashup. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. That might, that would be interesting. Uh, I don't think it would go over very well though. So you probably also would get sued into oblivion. So don't mention us when you get caught. For sure, for sure. Who else did you have on your list that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, we started off with, you know, the most influential director of, like, the past uh, the past 30 years. So we'll go over to one of the most important people in the history of film, uh, which is uh, the composer John Williams, who composed the score for this film. And I was shocked that we haven't talked about John Williams yet on the podcast. I think we maybe have like mentioned him a couple times, but we haven't gone in depth. We haven't covered a movie that he scored yet. Yeah, and it is John Williams is I mean, it is hard to to understand the impact of John Williams. I was chatting with Zach before and trying to figure out if John Williams might be the person, the musician that more people have listened to his music out of any person that has ever lived, that is a possibility. He's in a conversation with people like, you know, the Beatles, and then, you know, maybe some of these older and influential musicians have songs that have just stuck around so much, like a Mozart or Beethoven, and maybe like a Michael Jackson, but John Williams is in that category of having reached so many human ears with his music. Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like maybe the the only other thing I could really think of was, as you said, maybe the Beatles or then maybe like Beethoven's ninth or one of those, or fifth, you know, one of those just very iconic and famous symphonies. Yeah, it's it's he, and his breadth of work is incredible. He's done so many things. He's been nominated for an Academy Award fifty two times. <laughs> fifty two times. It is he is just short of Walt Disney for the number of times that he's been nominated. So that is the category that he's in, uh, and he has won five times, which is, um. It is, I think it's the most. Um, I'm not sure. It's, uh, it's either the most or tied for the most or one behind. Um, he is uh, very well regarded. And uh, so I pulled together a list of uh, the top ten film tunes of all time. Oh, okay. Um, hmm. So uh, the, the first thing I'm going to have, have you guess, uh, I'm not going to go have you go through the whole thing, but how many John Williams uh, themes do you think are on the top ten film themes of all time? So I assume we can double up on Star Wars? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I'm going to guess there's probably two Star Wars 
The Star Wars is only included one time on oh, the list. Oh, only so, included yeah. once. Okay, yes. so I guess one Star Wars. I would have guessed two, though. Um, I'm guessing Indiana Jones, main theme. I'm guessing... Uh, would a Jurassic Park theme make it? I'm going to say... I'm going to guess no, but I won't be surprised if it's on the list. And then probably Jaws, and then maybe Close Encounters. So what is that, five? Five out of ten? Uh, and the answer is six out of ten. Six out um, of ten. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's uh, this is from a Radio Times poll. So um, this is, I mean, these are people that work for a music magazine. It's, it, you know, they're appealing to a certain demographic, but at the same time, these are these are music people. So, so I'll so tell how, you where Jurassic well, Park. Hold on, on, let me go ahead. I, I'm going to try and figure out what. So I assume just like the main Star Wars title theme is on there. Yeah. Yes. Yes, that's the one. Uh, and am I right that the Indiana Jones theme is on there? Yep. Yep. Okay. What about Jaws? Jaws is on there. Yeah. Um, and Close Encounters. Close Encounters is not. Ooh. Okay. And so yeah, then then go ahead and tell me where Jurassic Park is. So Jurassic Park comes in at number four mm-hmm. uh, on this list. There are two John Williams films that come above it, and one non-John Williams theme. So, what do you think are the the one, two, and three? So like three, two, one. What do you think those might be? So you said two John Williams are before it. Yes, one of them you have not guessed yet. Wait, how is that possible? There is a John Williams score that you have not guessed that is on the list of the top four that you have not, you haven't even mentioned yet. I have to just be missing it. There has to be a big one that I'm missing, right? Yeah, there's a big one. Uh, uh, I wouldn't. I'm not surprised you're missing this one though. There's there's another big John Williams thing on the top ten that you missed that is surprising to me. But yeah. Um. Does he have, it, would it be Schindler's List? It is not. So I'll give you the number three because that's the okay. one. It's Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. I, that was going to uh, be my thing. next guess, but oh, no. I, I honestly can't, I don't know that theme. So it's like a little harder for me to know. I just know that's his other big franchise. So the number two on the list mm-hmm. is not a, uh, not a John Williams uh, score. Uh when was this done? Uh, in the early 2000s, which probably gives it away. Uh, yeah, I mean, my night, the reason I asked is because I was going to guess Howard Shore. Uh, yes, it is Howard Shore. Oh, so the list was not the early 2000s. I think it was 2010. But uh, the Lord oh. of the Rings, Howard Shore's, was in 2001. Yes. Yeah. And then the number one was Star Wars, which I won't make you guess it. I think you probably would have uh, guessed that. Yeah, so. I mean, I, it's, it's a little hard to imagine... Maybe they just wanted diversity. It's a little hard to imagine not putting the Imperial March on there as well. It's just so yeah. iconic, and that I mean, the we're going to talk a little bit about the effect that John Williams has on this movie, and but the fact that he is just so good at making an, I, anthems like that's really only the word that the only word that comes to mind that really are memorable and are hummable but don't detract from the film it like it's just astounding and there i mean there are obviously like he's had some criticisms of you know plagiarism or stealing or whatever and i think that's kind of 
bullpucky. You know, you and I both believe pretty strongly that we stand on the, you know, we use the influences of people who came before us. And (laughs) if it were easy to steal that stuff, then someone else would have done it, you know? Yeah. And I mean, it's... Uh, if there's anybody that has been very vocal about the influences that that has affected his film scoring, it's him himself. Um, he is very clear about the, the composers that influenced him. Because, for example, a lot of those composers he worked with early on, and they were mentors to him. So it's, you know, it's not like he's... He is connected to those things, and he understands where he comes from with all of that. So that's John Williams. Yeah, the the one thing I wanted to add about John Williams, so we'll, we'll probably get into the music a little bit here, but the you mentioned that he does these kind of like anthems, including uh, he wrote the anthem for uh, the Olympics, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, amazingly. But one of the other things that stands out from his work, he uses a lot of what's called leitmotifs, which is like little tunes that or little... Um, like a, uh, a little tune that goes over a few bars that can then be placed in different parts of a film connecting to like certain characters or certain situations or certain things like that. And that's the main characteristic of his film, uh, or of his scores. And it, that kind of music had fallen out of style before John Williams came back in with Star Wars and brought it back to become popularized again. And he uses that here in Jurassic Park. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I was listening to the, to the soundtrack earlier and it's just like the, you know, you, you could, if you want to look at the way he sort of manipulates, I guess I kind of felt like there were two main themes, but they, they might be connected. There's like the main park theme and then, yeah, the one that's like dun 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 dun. dun yeah, that one there. the one that happens when they're when they're flying in, which were yeah, the spoilers. Yeah. that's the first scene that we're going to talk about. But yeah, and yeah. then he sort of weaves those all together, and then there are other textures in the movie that happen, obviously as as needed. But those are sort of explored and played with in a way that's really pretty reminiscent of how. A classical composer would explore the same theme through whatever fifty percent of their first movement of the sonata. Obviously, less structured. Mm-hmm. You gotta follow a movie, but yeah. And people usually describe John Williams' work as neo-romanticism, as mm-hmm. kind of taking those kind of ideas and using the same idea of like a light motif and taking those and then uh, exploring those throughout different uh, different parts of the film. Yeah. Uh, you had one other person you wanted to talk about here. So who was Yes. That? Um, and I didn't know if you knew who this person was. This is a guy no, named Steve Williams. Yeah, and I did not find out about Steve Williams until I went pretty far in looking into this film. Um, Steve Williams might be the person that the entire film hinges on out of the in- everyone that was involved. Um, and so Steve dino, Williams is... Dino magic, I'm guessing. Yes, Dino Magic. So, uh, so you had when ILM came to do this film, the special effects they knew were going to be really important, but <laughs> there just were not believable dinosaurs on screen before this time period. It's hard to explain, like, like we covered Godzilla last week, that and was a believable dinosaur. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> um, 
that's kind of one of the better examples of a believable looking dinosaur from cinema's history before this point. And the other thing, the other film that's kind of the standout is an animated film called The Land Before Time. And other than that, there just was not good representations of what dinosaurs <laughs> might Dino look like, something that would look real, realistic. Um, and there's uh, one of the things that uh, I've been following for a long time, Neil Gaiman on Twitter, and he did this thing during the, the winter break where he had everyone send him statues of dinosaurs, not send him statues, but pictures of statues of dinosaurs that look weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things that you see in this is there's so many statues that were built from like the 70s to the 90s of dinosaurs that just look freakish and weird and they don't they just look really bad and from the time period of jurassic park going forward you see a dramatic change in the way these things looked oh so it sort of defined what we imagine dinosaurs look like in fact you might even be able to say that like um we have a hard time imagining other alternatives to what dinosaurs look like because of Jurassic Park. Mm, yeah, um, that's not surprising to me. So they brought in Industrial Light and Magic, which is a company owned by George Lucas. And George Lucas was heavily involved in this film. In all the behind-scenes things, he shows up constantly. Very good friend of Steven Spielberg. But you had two folks that were kind of the leaders of different visions of how to approach this film. You had a guy named Phil Tippett, who was a uh, miniatures and puppeteer kind of guy. A practical effects kind of guy. Uh, And then you had Steve Williams, who was this young i don't know his age exactly but like 25 year old guy that was had come out of cambridge and was an expert (laughs) at computers and computers were like new at the time period and they didn't really know how they were going to use computer effects in the film and so they just had them like in the basement kind of off to the side with these with like three computers a room that was just filled with all kinds of like whatever extra stuff they had stuffed down there and just like wrappers of like cheetos and all kinds of stuff all over the place (laughs) and it was these two guys in that room working on computers that kind of got the ball starting and steve williams is the is the one who did the animatics for the for the t-rex so what had happened is they're getting this film ready and the guy that was his supervisor tells him you're not going to do any animation on the t-rex all they brought them in for was they were worried that with the with the practical effects that because they were doing like stop motion practical effects was the plan with the dinosaurs that mm-hmm. there wouldn't be motion blur with the movement of the dinosaurs so they said all you're going to do is animate the motion blur he's like okay fine uh we'll do what you say you know it's that's what we're going to do but he's a known rule breaker and has gotten like fired from many projects because he just didn't do what he was told so on his like spare time he animated this entire t-rex and put together the bones and put together you know all of this thing and worked on it for months and months and months and then what they did is they staged this thing um, where him and this other guy, they they got the producers, Kathleen Kennedy in particular, and they kind of 
brought him in to show something about like the motion blur or whatever it was but they had a tv in the corner that had the animation of the t-rex playing over on the corner and they just had it going when they came in so they come in and they they see this the producers and they're supposed to be looking over over at this one thing and they just walk them past the tv and they stop and they're like what is this he said oh that's just something you know the guys have been working on i don't know it's (laughs) (laughs) this kind of thing and um completely changed the way that they they redid the entire plan of what they were doing with the movie including rewriting the entire end of the movie so that they could have the t-rex show up at the end with the raptors on that whole set piece at the end of the film and because of like the work that was done by this guy steve williams with the the animatics it completely revolutionized and changed the entire film industry like this is the first time on film that you really saw a film that was able to do cgi in this kind of way and everything afterwards it's like jurassic park is this moment where everything afterwards depends on that film and it i mean it it looks pretty good still like yeah there there were not very many moments in this movie where i was like oh yikes yeah it's a uh, i do want to say that um i think the reason why it holds up is not because of this guy um i think it's because of the blend of the practical effects and the cgi effects yeah certainly Uh, when it switches to full cgi are the moments where you can tell but in retrospect there have to be moments that were full cgi that I didn't bump on it. Like the the T-Rex chasing the Jeep, that has to be full CGI, right? So the answer to it is every scene in which you see the uh, uh, the entire body of the T-Rex, mm-hmm. so as in its feet and its head, if you see both of those, that's CGI. Yeah. Uh, and any time where you see just a body part of the T-Rex, it's, uh, it's a practical effect. Yeah. So I guess I could tell that most all of the time. It's just during the chase sequence. I mean, I probably was just too invested in the movie, but I, I stopped being able to tell probably because I was just an audience member at that point. Well, there's a lot of situations in it where they also blend the 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 practical effects with the CGI. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I noticed some uh, of those. So they're doing a lot of that, and it's it's so it's transitioning very quickly, and so a lot of them are hard to see because anytime the the practical effect is moving, they're using CGI to make like a motion blur in the way that it moves, mm-hmm. so that it uh, so it doesn't look choppy as you're seeing it. Right. And because they did all these all these different things, and I think there's a lot of other things that go into it as well. The cinematography, the angles that they're shooting from, like the rain that's coming down, the performances from the actors. Um, I, I think all of these contribute to why this film is so believable and I think holds up really well considering how long it's been, you know, 30 years of CGI development from that time period. Yeah, cool. Do you have anything else you want to say about Steve Williams, or should we talk about that's it? Let's talk move about on. Some scenes. All right. So the first scene that I had pulled is the I wanted to talk about the island approach. So this is them flying in on the helicopter through to them seeing the dinosaurs for the first time, and also with the exception of a T Rex eye the first time that we get to see the dinosaurs. And so there were, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about this scene is 
I think there's a lot of really interesting good things that sort of we can hit a bunch of different things by talking about this scene. The first though is a these shots of the helicopter flying into the island, like the exterior shots of the helicopter flying are just absolutely stunning. And it is very exciting. And I I couldn't help but thinking that, because I mean, when you cut the film or when you film, when you film it and then you sort of put a cut together to get scored, you probably know some themes that the composer has, but you haven't heard the score yet, you know? But John Williams and Steven Spielberg, they had worked together so much at this point. We ran down their, uh, Steven Spielberg's filmography and some of John Williams' highlights. and But I think basically every movie that Spielberg did, John Williams worked on. So they knew each other very well. And I have to imagine that there was that feeling of like, yeah, I can shoot these majestic shots of this helicopter flying over the ocean into this island. And I just know that John Williams is going to knock it out of the park. I can write some pithy dialogue uh, for Jeff Goldblum before this, and I can do some character stuff, but there is a lot of silence. I think it's maybe 45 seconds to a minute 15, where it is just John Williams score carrying everything. And I think it is so cool. It is one of the things that really contributes to the excitement of the movie. Yeah. And the, the, the theme is just so good where they're coming in and the, I love the cinematography, the shots of the Island and all of that stuff, but you're right. Like it is amazing how much John Williams's score elevates this film. Mm-hmm. Like if I were to guess how well this film would do, if it just didn't have John Williams, I just like half as good i don't know it's it makes such a big impact yeah it's impossible to tell i had the same feeling the last time i watched star wars where it's just like these things are so inextricably linked and it seems it seems bananas to imagine that this could exist without this music without this orchestration and without everything fitting the way it does now but it did like it didn't Someone had to make that, you know? Yeah, it's... My family has been, like, humming the Jurassic Park theme since yeah. we watched this. Yeah, yeah, me too. It's so good, and it just sticks in your mind. And it gives you so much... But but what I think is fascinating about the way that John Williams scores the films is that he is bringing out emotions that are connecting with what's on screen. Uh, because you're seeing these shots of the island and this majestic, uh, this majestic music that's going... He is eliciting what is there, but he's bringing out in a more profound and elevated way. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And that sort of segues into the next part of this scene that I wanted to talk about, which is them, they get into the Jeep and they're driving through whatever, through the island to get to see the um, the first dinosaurs. Are, are they brontosaurus? I don't want to anger they're brachiosaurs. our brachiosaurs. I don't want to anger yeah. our dino fans. And one of the things that is so interesting and so strange about this movie is there are full segments. And I think really a lot of the movie hinges on the idea that a lot of it is structured like a horror film, especially the climax of the movie. But 
if you like look at basically any horror film and if memory serves me correctly jaws as well the crossing the threshold is always ominous but it is not ominous in this movie in this movie it is like an attraction at disneyland being scored and i think that is such a great subversion because you don't really it's not it's not winking at the audience to say some bad stuff is going to happen and you know bad stuff is going to happen it's really leaning into the awe and the excitement so that that we don't when we see the the first dinos it's not where it's not tinged with horror it's tinged with excitement and wanting to see more and it's like oh my goodness i can't believe they did this i can't believe in the story these scientists did this but i also can't believe we're seeing this dinosaur rear up on its hind legs and then come crashing down with a huge base subwoofer and it's so good yeah it <laughs> it's, it's really so good great. this is this is one of those uh gifs by the way is the what what's the paleontologist's name um, the archaeologist uh, alan grant yes alan grant the paleontologist yeah the look of him taking off his sunglasses as he looks at the the dinosaur and yeah. it i mean it is so like the, the we talked about it a little bit for godzilla about how they don't really treat that monster reveal like it's really much of anything in that movie not the way sort of you would as a modern audience and it makes sense what you said that they hadn't shown any of the dinosaurs and so it's really teasing you because you get about 30 to 45 seconds of seeing them see the dinosaurs before yeah. it's finally before you see it okay dinos. So, you you see them sta- it's i have to say the direction of this is on top of the score being amazing this is mm-hmm. one of the best directive scenes i've ever seen of all time because they get there and like they stop the the there's this conversation that Ian Malcolm is having uh, off to the side and that conversation is kind of going as the score is building and they stop and you see the kind of things slow down and the shot come over them and then the way that they stand up out of the jeep and like take their glasses off and Alan Grant like fumbles his glasses off and Ellie Sattler mm-hmm. kind of rips her glasses off. And it keeps the camera on these close-ups of these actors as they're seeing it. So you're seeing this human reaction that you're connecting with. And the the way that they had originally performed this scene, uh, the actors, is they, they were not doing, like, the glasses ripping off and all of those kinds of things. They were just, like, getting up and, like, um, kind of doing hand motions. And so Steven Spielberg was like, no, what we need is I want you to... He does this thing with objects where he likes you to do a motion with an object mm-hmm. and then get a look at your eyes. So they have these glasses on and it's, like, move to where we can see your eyes and see the awe in your eyes as this is going. And, and Sam Neill and Laura Dern both talked about how that was completely against their intuition of how they would have acted the scene, but it was so right for the moment. And then it gradually comes over, and then you see the dinos, and the music just soars, and Alan Grant just falls down on the ground. And it is one of the most brilliantly directed scenes that I have ever seen. And it's so restrained. Like, it's not like there's not dialogue here, but there's not a lot of dialogue. It really is letting the silent actions and then, of course, the 
CGI as well speak for itself. But the and then the bits of dialogue that are there really do speak for themselves. You know, you have a T Rex. Yeah, we've got a T Rex. And the the one that like sticks in my memory is that moment where he's like, they move in herds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And it's just a simple thing. But that moment for that paleontologist, you know, is like a life changing moment that he's having there. And he has no words to express it except saying they move in herds. We knew they moved in herds. Yeah. Well, I think that's like confirmation of something that had been theorized or had strong theories for, but they didn't. (laughs) how could you have confirmation until now until you see it in real life it's that it's that kind of line it's just oh yeah it's it is it is a great scene yeah uh do you do you want to say anything about this this first i had one other thing i wanted to talk about but i think it actually goes a little better in either the next scene or the scene after i don't think i have anything else um well just the other thing is that Jeff Goldblum is so charming throughout this entire thing, but it's kind of like, I don't know, he has this kind of skeevishness, but you kind of play it off because he's so charming at it. That, um, that was my and... other thing, was to talk about Jeff Goldblum, yeah. <laughs> he's just so good. Oh my gosh, it's hard to imagine uh, having this film without him. And uh, I'll give you a little spoiler, this is like a little little thing, but um, in the book, John, Jeff Goldblum's character, Ian Malcolm, dies. Mm-hmm. Um and he lives in the film, and so in the second book, he wrote it so that um, so that Ian Malcolm miraculously survived so they could bring him back because people loved him so much. So, I don't know, I, I find it fascinating. That's funny. I mean, it, yeah, let's move on to the next scene because he has some good yeah, stuff in both of our next two scenes. Yeah, and this next scene is very much the opposite of that last one, mm-hmm. um, which is we had this uh, long scene with a lot of uh, music playing where they were moving through the park. But this one, for me, is one of the philosophical cores of the of the scene, which is where they go to this um, – after they've kind of toured a little bit, they go and they have a meal together. And it's lunch, apparently, that they go to sit down to, and they have Chilean sea bass. And they bring this out, and they're discussing the endorsements that John Hammond is asking for from these scientists and this mathematician for coming to see the park. And he's talking to them about uh, the philosophy of it, and they're having just this conversation back and forth about the ethics of bringing these extinct animals to life and opening a theme park involved with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this... So, I mean, one of the things... And this is probably not something that you're really able to remember for this movie because it's so ingrained for you. But for me, one of the things that was really interesting about this first half hour, 45 minutes, uh, I guess maybe hour, is it's really ambiguous. Like it's clear that our protagonists are the scientists who are coming coming to the island, but it's really ambiguous what our point of view is supposed to be on the guy who's running the park and the lawyer. Yes. It it was not immediately clear to me, like, are we supposed to be, who are we supposed to be rooting for here? And I think that nebulousness is really nice. And it's sort of brought into focus in the, the, because this is the scene where he says, how come 
how come the only one on my side is the blood-sucking lawyer? Yes. Yeah, and so, yeah, it was uh, it, I was not expecting sort of that complexity in how I felt about those characters. Yeah, and it's, it's so clever the way that it's set up because uh, John Hammond, it would have been really easy to make him this completely unsympathetic rich guy that just is unaware of, like, how the dangers of the park. And he is that, but he's also this little kid that just has wonder at having dinosaurs and creating yeah. something that is beautiful for people to see. And so it's easy to sympathize that. And he has grandkids that he loves and that he cares about. Uh, and he is trying to do the right thing and failing at it so miserably. And so I find that a really fascinating character. The, the only one out of this entire scene at, at the beginning, you get this idea that Gennaro, the lawyer is the end, the antagonist against John or the is John's John Hammond's antagonist and trying mm-hmm. to prevent him from making yeah. a bark. But he gets completely switched around when he realizes the money he can make. Um, yeah. And when we get this perspective that it's not the right thing to do, but John Hammond is still, uh, still doesn't understand that and thinks that if they can just see enough of the park and see the dinos, they're going to understand the vision that he has for it. Yeah. And this, uh, the other, I mean, Jeff Goldblum, I I think like Jeff Goldblum is part of the reason this movie worked so well. He is extremely funny. It's really the sort of rogue archetype, sort of the same fulfilling the same function as like Han Solo and Star Wars. Yeah. But his dialogue is really funny and he delivered like I I laughed aloud a lot of times during this movie and he has really great comedic timing but then he also has the line in this film that is so iconic that when I heard it I was like, "Oh, they have to have cribbed that from somewhere else. There's no way." that this line came from this film and I don't want to don't want to butcher it but it's the you were so preoccupied with whether you could you never stopped to think about if you whether you should yeah and no I spent a good amount of time googling it and it's maybe it's in the book as well I don't know for sure but it's from Jurassic Park there's I couldn't find any previous previous history of this line and uh it's pretty great Ian Malcolm has a lot of good lines in the book, but I don't think this one in particular is there, but I'm not enough of an expert to know for sure. I I think if it had been in the book, it would have shown up in some of my Google searches, but everything said it was from the movie. It's so good. But he also has this incredible uh, line beforehand, like where he's there and he's talking and talking about how you didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves. Mm -hmm. You don't take responsibility. You stood on the shoulders of giants. And before you knew, you'd patented it and packaged it and slapped it on plastic lunchboxes. You hit in the table. And these lines just, uh, he, the delivery is really iconic. It's one of the better dialogues, like, in film history, the way, the way that the interaction between John Hammond and Ian Malcolm is done here, and Jeff Goldblum really does just a, an incredible performance with it. Yeah, he, he, he really nails it. Um, I also find just the ethics of it fascinating, which kind of, when I was a kid and watching it, that really got me invested in it, because they're debating this, this thing, which is... A, a reasonable argument to have and uh, there's this line that sticks out into me it, you know how films have those lines that maybe don't hit everybody else the same way but the delivery of it you just remember in your head mm-hmm. 
one of them for me in this one is when John Hammond is having this argument and uh, Ian Malcolm had delivered that line, it waits a beat, and then he jumps in and he says, Condors! Condors are on the verge of extinction! And then they have this little argument and he's saying, if if I had brought condors to this island, nobody would be arguing. Um, and this idea that these are creatures, like bringing back an extinct creature would we would probably see this as such a, a good for the world. Uh, and this is how John Hammond has seen what he's doing, but then they're arguing in the ethics of even doing that kind of thing and the way that we can't understand uh, the way the life might, the way that different kinds of life might interact. Yeah, and I think there's also like, a, it's sort of a psychology twist or a psychology jab at the audience because for a lot of people, like the reason... It's not like your classic horror film where you're just like rooting against whatever the bad thing is because you know that like you don't really see the upside. But people, if you go to see Jurassic Park, you know the upside because it's part of what you went to see. You went because you wanted to see dinosaurs. And so a part of you is like forced to be bought into the park's vision. And like, I have to imagine that the majority of people are like, yeah, I want to go on the the Disneyland ride through a dinosaur park. <laughs> I, I want that to be safe. I want that to be a real thing I can do. I, I mean, this is what I think every time I see one of these movies. is like, I just want to go to Jurassic Park and see all the dinosaurs. That would top any of these movies for me. But this philosoph- this is why, for me, this is the best of the Jurassic Park movies. Because it understands this nugget of f- philosophy that is at the core of the film. And so it's not only a great movie that has some great shots of dinosaurs. But it is also an interesting uh, philosophical treatment of the way that we use science and the kinds of things that we do with it. Yeah. uh, hmm. I guess I don't really want to ask any questions about the sequels because now I think I kind of am going to watch them. But uh, do you have anything else that you want to say about this scene or should we move on? We can move on. All right. The next one's yours too. So what is that? All right. So the next scene that we have here is one of the most effective scenes in movie history i mean it's like top 10 for me um so it is after the power has been shut off at the park and dennis nedry is fleeing through the park um and uh dr alan grant and dr ian malcolm and Gennaro the lawyer and the two kids don't know that this is what's happened their uh, cars are stuck and there is this rain coming down just torrential rain pouring Uh, And they are sitting inside of these cars waiting for any information on what might come up. Um, They are just sitting there kind of playing around with the flashlights and the night vision goggles that are there inside of the car. They look over and they see that the goat that was left there as food for the T-Rex is gone. And then the fence starts getting pulled down. There's so much that happens in this scene. It's not just the goat is gone. It's where's the goat? And then a bloody goat limb hits, hits the jeep. Ah, oh, such a great scene! Uh, it's a it's such a great scene. I, like as soon as we're there, then we like, adventure film is gone. You know, this is no longer Indiana Jones. We are. It is a horror. We are in yeah. a horror film. Yes, um, and then it just the way that it ramps up the tension. There's this one shot I kind of missed it, but uh, where the cup is sitting on the on mm-hmm. the yeah 
on the dashboard and it starts vibrating and the kids just sitting there watching this cup and the water vibrate and then they look over and see the goat it comes down and the lawyer just takes off running and hides in the bathroom uh the cords come down and the t-rex steps into view and <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> Oh my goodness, the, just every bit of this scene. Uh, I know that, you know, the the science of the visual acuity of the of the dinosaur doesn't really hold up, but the rule as far as the film goes, I think does really well hold up. I don't know if that makes sense. Uh say that again. The rule as far as the film story, I think does hold up. They establish early on that the T-Rex can only see through and see movement, but and so that fi- that line that had been delivered earlier in the film gets delivered here and paid off in such a clear way where the T-Rex is looking for them and it can't see their movement um, and the way that this uh, this whole set piece is staged. Um, uh, so they're in the cars and the kids are in these cars and it, Alan Grant has this thing where he says, hold still, he can only see you if you're moving. And then we pan over to the kids that are just moving like crazy and getting a flashlight at and, and, and flailing it around. And the tension that this gets, like the dramatic irony, because you know what they're supposed to do, be doing and they don't, mm-hmm. uh, is just so powerful. And then, you know, Tim, the kid, the dinosaur expert, tells her to stop moving and you realize, you know, they've got a little bit more information. The T-Rex comes and starts hitting the car and moving it and then comes over onto the ceiling and comes down and the glass comes crashing down on top of those kids and their screams of terror uh when this happens it's just oh such a such a great such a great scene yeah and there i was pretty sure kids were not gonna die but i was not like i was like 95 percent sure i was not 100 percent sure but then uh like really probably the good guy in this movie is the t-rex because he eats he he munches the lawyer he does eat the lawyer, yeah. Whew, that guy's done. Yeah, get <laughs> so, out of here. Uh, and that moment where he's sitting on the toilet and the walls fall down and he's just like looking up at the lawyer uh, or at the T-Rex and then it comes down and just chomps him. Oh, <laughs> it is such a great moment. It's so good. And then, you know, the kids kind of, the, the car gets turned over, Tim's in the, in the car, and then uh, the girl is, like, up on top. Alan Grant tries to distract the T-Rex to get it thrown away. I'm messing up the order of all these events because it's so much that happens. Uh, he a throws lot, a yeah. flare. Ian Malcolm, like, throws his own flare and tries to lead the T-Rex away, and Alan Grant goes to pull Tim out from the car, and the girl turns around and screams, then he holds her mouth, and they hold perfectly still, and the uh, they go over the edge, and the car goes over to the edge just all of these uh, it was so dramatic and worked so well my uh, my daughter was completely on the edge of her seat um and uh, every moment she's she's cheering or like uh terrified as it's going when the when the t-rex comes down and that glass is there she's just like it's only glass and then when they're trying to reach over for that cord so they can get out of the way she's like come on come on as the like three tries to get over to get that thing um it is an incredible scene and uh what i've said about jurassic park in in the past is the reason why this series makes a billion dollars with every movie that comes out is because of that scene and it's so good that it's earned a billion dollars for each of the movies that's come after it well and the i mean that one shot in particular of him standing with the girl and the they're by the car and the t-rex it like he's 
his hand is over her mouth telling her not to move and not to make a sound and the t-rex is just right there is it's so good it's so scary and it's such an iconic shot and the t-rex looks good i mean i assume i guess that's just a head so that's a. um so they built a nine ton they built a nine ton t-rex uh what do you even call it puppet huge (laughs) i mean it's just the size of that t-rex and it's this huge t-rex with like the feet and the arms and the head and everything and one of the things that they had a problem with is because it was raining so badly the t-rex absorbed all of it so it got like chunky um from from absorbing (laughs) all the water so they had to redo all the special effects because they had to make the t-rex fatter uh in the special effects because he got so much fatter from this scene (laughs) that's funny but yeah all of that's i mean and it was really dangerous to have that thing on set like they had to be really careful because those teeth are sharp um and it's like uh that is a huge machine that is being used. And so because they did so much so well with the practical effects on that, I think it makes the performances so good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the special effects and the practical effects only go so far. The way the characters are reacting to those things is what allows you to empathize with them and really connect with what's happening. Yeah. The, one of the other things that I really like about this scene that we sort of glossed over is before any of the horror happens, Jeff Goldblum goes up to the other truck and then comes back and, or no, 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 sorry, the other way around. The paleontologist goes up to the car and comes back and Jeff Goldblum says, how are the kids? Oh, they're fine. They're not scared? No, why would they be scared? <laughs> and he's like, well, kids get scared. Kids. Yeah. And he's like, well, there's no reason to be scared. It's just the power out. And, he, and Jeff Goldblum retorts, I'm not saying I'm scared. I'm saying the kids are scared. And it is just such a great little piece of dialogue between the two of them. So Jeff Goldblum good. delivers so good. it so well. Yeah, it's, a, it's such subtle um, emotions that are going on there. He's scared, but definitely does not want to communicate how scared he is. Um, there's this other moment where uh, he's like talking to Alan Grant. I can't remember if it's right at this, but it's very close. Where he's like, so you and Dr. Sattler, um, you know, uh, and they kind of communicate that they're a thing. And he's like, yeah. oh, uh, you know, sorry. And then kind of all of this <laughs> starts. And uh, I don't know. It, these little human moments make it so much more easy to connect with when all the horror starts, uh, I think. Yeah. And that's the sort of thing that, like, in a lesser movie, they, I mean, people know you have to put that into your movies. But if it doesn't work, it is just so cringy. And. It, it's just a tough thing, you know? It's just a, an alchemy of good script writing and good performances by the actors and script writing that matches the performances that the actors are going to be able to do. I agree. And, it, you know, it's it's interesting to me because it's as I'm talking to you, it's obvious that so much of it hinges on Jeff Goldblum's performance, but he's mm-hmm. in the second one. And the lines, there's still some good lines in that one. But his scene partners just don't give him as much to act off of mm, as uh, 
And so I think that the the combination of Sam Neill and uh, and Jeff Goldblum and Laura Dern all together really make this work so much better. Uh, and then in the third film, you have Alan Grant, uh, you have Sam Neill and Laura Dern back as Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler, but you don't have Ian Malcolm. And again, it just doesn't have the same kind of connection. And I think because you had the three of them there, their personalities bounce off of each other in such an interesting dynamic that it uh, makes everything better. Yeah. Uh, I have a few couple other things for this scene. So far, we've basically only talked about all the things that we like or love about this. But there's a few things that we can talk about for this scene that were some of the things that bugged me a little bit. One of them was actually probably one of the only things that bugged me during the movie. And that was there's an aspect to this paleontologist where I felt like I could see the film adaptation in a way that took me out of the movie. And I just felt like his relationship to the kids, while I understand the necessity of that arc and the necessity of wanting to have this section where he decides to go and save them and sort of become, like, accept the potential of his father figure for that, it felt like the beginning of that arc was very ham-fisted in a way that felt like I don't actually know if it was in the book or not but it felt like something that they were like we have to add this for the movie so that he can he can have this arc and it did not it's very much in the arc uh, or in the book but it's very different uh the Mm. way that it plays specifically Tim is older he's Mm. like 15 and the little girl is younger and I can't remember I can't remember if the they changed this up and i think one of the big reasons why is because they made the girl the hacker or computer expert yeah Yeah, to solve this thing at the end and i think that they switched it up specifically to give her that moment later on um and it's really interesting in the book because you have this dynamic where you have tim who's like 14 or 15 and has read everything that dr alan grant has done and is they go on a bit more adventures and there's uh, and alan grant and the kids are together through all of that so they have their entire storyline and so many scenes that don't ever show up in, in the film and so their relationship develops in a much more complex um and uh I don't know, dynamic way. And so this the film is kind of only scratching the surface of it. Yeah, the development didn't bother me. It was the starting place. It was just like, yeah. it was such a cartoonish representation of a guy who hates children that they could, I think they could have just been a little yeah. more subtle about it in a way yeah. that I uh, didn't feel the film adaptation. Yeah, and the book is, it, it t- because it has so much more space to do it, I think it does do it in a much more subtle way. So probably you'd like that part um, with the way it developments. I don't know for sure, but uh, you might enjoy that it takes its time with that relationship. Yeah. And then the other thing, maybe people have like drawn diagrams about this or something, but I do not understand the geography <laughs> of this T-Rex exhibit. Because um, yeah. I feel like... That car drops really far, but it sure looks like that goat is really close. And then after this scene is all over, it sure seems like she gets 
when she like sees the car down there she gets down there really fast so i don't yeah, yeah I, I don't know have people like done diagrams on this does it it is out? you know one of those things about movies got it nothing to tell you i mean it's just it makes no sense and okay. this is yeah. one of those things where people look at it and they're like well the physics you know but there, there's no way to understand this one it's just impossible movie physics okay yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. i mean it was the it was something i noticed at the time i was like how does this work yeah. but yeah i remember noticing that um in some of my earlier watches and i've just seen it enough times at this point i'm like ah whatever you don't think um, about it, yeah. so yeah i just don't even i don't even think about it do you have anything else you want to say about this scene or should we move on well, let's move on yeah all right uh and so the last thing i oh i guess we can segue into this because i think they did do something really brave here but also really clever which is i think like, if you had to ask someone before seeing Jurassic Park, what is the climax of this dinosaur movie going to be? Like, basically everyone is going to say, your climax is the T-Rex. Everything's about the T-Rex. And the, the film sort of, like, leans into that at the beginning, right? It's like, oh, you have a T-Rex? Yeah, we have a T-Rex. But they do this subversion where it's not the T-Rex who's the big, like, who's the scariest thing and so it because you hit it at about the halfway point of the movie it's like oh my god where is this movie gonna go like it feels like we've peaked because of what you were expecting at the end happens in the middle but i think they actually deliver on being able to one-up it because they do a really good job of setting up that the raptors are going to be the scariest thing and then when you actually do get to the climax of the raptors it's like oh my goodness these are so these guys are so terrifying and there's you know it's all of these uh chekhov's guns come to fruition right the it's the thing that they talk about about how smart they are and you get to see them one of them approach their prey head on and then the rest of them come in from the sides but the, there were just a couple moments about this climax that I wanted to highlight because I really liked them. Uh, one of them is just this the literal moment after she turns on the electricity and you finally think you're safe. Or if you know movies, you know that there's probably going to be one last hurrah. But I was not expecting it to be like within that exact split second we were going to have a raptor jump out. And then it was just like, oh, oh, I guess we're off to the races. We're just here yeah we're it we're in the end game and then it yeah, happens again with i gotta the, say about that scene where the t-rex is like right behind her or not the t-rex the velociraptor the Raptor, yeah um watching it in the movie theater let me tell you the screams at that moment i mean it was that movie theater was chaos Oh, yeah. um, I bet. and it was, it was intense as like an eight year old watching this film and that terrified me. But what terrified me even more is the way people just screamed at that. Yeah. It's scary. And then you get the severed arm after that, which, oh, yeah. uh, holy cow. I was not expecting that. What was this a rated R film or is it PG 13? It's PG 13. Yeah. PG 13. Yeah. Just absolutely not expecting that. And then there, there's a lot of other stuff that happens here, but I did want to talk about the this scene in the kitchen. Oh, it's so good. Which, oh my gosh, yes. 
is just sort of compare it to um, that scene from The Shining, which I I liked quite a bit and I thought was pretty affecting. But this was like a thousand times more affecting to me. I just thought it was a lot scarier and there were a lot more elements. And then the sort of coup d'etat at the end where they have the little filmography trick that they play on you where they put you in the shoes of the raptor where you think that the dinosaur is running straight towards her, but she ended up tricking him and he runs into the mirror. It's just like, I I couldn't help comparing that to uh, the kid walking backwards in The Shining and just thinking that one was so slow. And I like, there's an argument for the brilliance of that and why that works for that movie. But it's just like the sheer adrenaline rush that happened when it was like, oh, they tricked me. Oh, they got me. They got me in like a couple seconds. It was really, really cool. Uh, And you know what's fascinating about that part is they set it all up. She comes around and she hops in that thing and they clearly establish, they do a clear establishing shot. That that cabinet is on the end of that thing and that there's a reflect, they do a shot where you see the reflection of that thing um, and they establish that it's a reflection. You see her scramble around and go in, but because it's all moving so quick and you're so terrified and you're keeping your eyes on those raptors. Uh, it it gets you. It really does get you, and they're running towards it, and she's just screaming. And you can understand why, because if it doesn't work, she's just going to be complete toast. Uh, mm-hmm. But it runs into that reflection, and they get away, and oh, it's so good. The, the other moment from this one that just really got my attention so much is that moment where they intercut to the other scene and Ellie Sattler's like, yeah, they're taken care of unless they figured out how to open doors. And then the raptor reaches down and opens the door. And you're just like, oh no. Oh no. (laughs) They can't open doors. This is bad. Uh, And just the differential in these raptors, these incredible lethal killing machines. And then these two kids that are completely alone in a kitchen with them. Oh, yeah. It is it is such a masterful scene. And you have you get a lot of moments where you think think that you're safe. You yeah. know, when the when they lock the doors into the control room or whatever it is. And then it's like, oh no, they actually can just break the glass because of course they didn't build their silly control room with uh unbreakable glass. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If their entire security system could get brought down by Newman, like, I guess they didn't invest (laughs) in in some glass, you know? Yeah. So that was all I really wanted to say about the climax. I just thought it was really great. It's great. I also think it's great that they... So one of the little cinematography tricks that they did is when they built all this whole set, they had originally had all the plans to build an entire park. Uh, well, not like an entire park, but all the buildings in the park and then have them look finished. But mm. then they ran out of money um, despite <laughs> having like so much money. So they were like, million dollars, okay, yeah. what if we just leave up all the scaffolding so it looks like it's not quite done yet? And it's just all the scaffolding that they were using to build it. And they just left it up there. And then they have this whole last action set piece on that scaffolding and on the bones. And it pays off so well. Like, uh, and, you know. 
the dinosaurs and the people are having a big climactic showdown on the swinging bones of the dinosaurs. Oh, it's iconic. Yeah. I, I mean, if, if you had not sold the horror leading up to this moment, I think this would be, I think this scene would be a laughing stock. Them yes. falling on the bones and then the T-Rex chomping some raptors and that banner flying. But because because they succeeded with you being so scared and so emotional i don't think you have time to really think like oh that's cheesy i agree yeah just like let's let's gtfo (laughs) it's good oh yeah i don't know there's so many good scenes in this one do you have anything else you want to say about this scene or should we move to cleanup let's move to cleanup yeah all right i'll go first because i think my the biggest thing that I kept thinking about for this movie is that there are so many threads that feel like they just sort of got lost or I'm not like a hundred percent sure why they're there. The biggest one is that it seems like they're setting up some sort of mystery about why this triceratops is sick that then never really gets answered. It's like... (laughs) it never does does it yeah she spends all this time trying to solve this mystery i was like oh this is gonna be kind of cool when we figure out what this is so i kept waiting for the moment where i'm like yeah she's gonna discover obviously the the animal has been eating the west lilacs because it's been uh what it does is it gets these stones and it eats them and then it goes into its digestive tract because it has multiple stomachs so it has to have these stones to help it digest the stones crush the things and because of that it's getting the west lilacs into its system into its bloodstream and then it is causing it to be poisoned now you may be wondering how did you know all of that and the answer is (laughs) it's in the book there's like five chapters of it in the book yeah, and it goes through this whole mystery and I just thought it was in the movie. I was like, when are they going to explain that? And they just don't. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know. I'm sitting there thinking like when she's investigating, digging through all the poop and all of that, uh, I kept waiting for her to explain it and then she doesn't. And I'm like, wait, okay, I guess I guess we missed that. I don't know. So I, I wonder if it just got cut. I think probably it did. I I bet they shot something to do with it and they just, it ended up on the cutting room floor and they couldn't cut all the other stuff because then you're like, where did she go? Yeah. So that's definitely the biggest one, but then there's a few others that just feel a little unsatisfying to me. One is the dino embryos, which ultimately are just... Like, they're really just misdirection for the security system of the park Mm -hmm. to get shut down. But there is still that shot of, like, the embryos getting swallowed by the mud. That's like, wait, were we supposed to be emotionally invested in these? Because he's obviously the bad guy, and this is obviously bad. I don't know. And I did do some Googling to see if they, like had planned to have a second movie when they shot this, and it looks like they did not. So it's not even like I can explain that away as being a plant for a future sequel. It's just yeah. um, something... So- yeah, I, I agree with you on this. Um, there's only two things I can I can say that maybe would help you be more at ease with it. The first one is uh, they didn't have plans for a sequel, but I think they were kind of 
you know, doing that thing that sometimes movies do where it's like, well, but maybe, I don't know, who knows? They're hedging, yeah. So, yeah, that's not the big one, though. I think that the big one, and it's just a thing after seeing it a bunch of times, I it's going, I think this is a deliberate thematic thing that it's doing where the embryos fall into the ground and then the mud falls over the top of them in the same way as a dinosaur if it had fallen into a mud pit or amber at some point. Uh, mm-hmm. Like those mosquitoes do that is being covered over and is probably going to get discovered, you know, millions of years from now. I think that it's going thematically for that because there's a lot of similarities in the way that shot of the amber covering the mosquito and the way that mud is covering the embryos. But it's a really subtle thing and I think it's hard to mi- it's easy to miss. And I don't know if it works all that well. Yeah, I, th- I think that's fair. So those are the only things I'd say about that. And then I only had two two other major things. One was another one that I felt like they were setting up to have a bigger payoff, but then, I don't know, the, maybe it's the payoff they always meant for it to have. It just felt a little lackluster to me, which was they set up this idea of the fact that the dinosaurs were all ladies, so they wouldn't be able to breed to be like something that I expected something really bad to happen from later in the movie but instead Mm -hmm. it was just like oh no they did change gender and they breeded and yeah uh that's the only mention of it i I thought it was really gonna like wreak havoc because their hubris had made them assume this but i assume that's something that they can presumably pick up on for later movies so again that Uh, might be yeah that that goes into the sequels yeah yeah so and then, um, it's also the the breeding of the dinosaurs uh does cause a ton of havoc again in the book um mm-hmm. so got it that uh, that, makes sense, that's part of, of that as well yeah yeah um and then the last one i'm curious about what you think about this is uh, the more i think about it the more strongly i feel about this i do not think they should have had that second introduction scene there so there's the initial introdu- intro scene where they're bringing the crate on and then the thing breaks and the guy gets eaten by the t-rex or whatever but then there's another scene where the lawyer is over there and he's like trying to meet with someone but then he goes down into the caves and he gets ignored and then someone finds amber and i just don't like i think i was sort of able to reconstruct what that scene is there for to show that they're like still trying to find other DNA, but it really made me confused about the timeline. And I just don't think, like I had to play a lot of catch up and I don't think it's worth it. I don't think I needed that to establish who the lawyer character was. I think I would have gotten it without that. Yeah, I don't know what, I don't know what to say. I mean, there's some really iconic shots in that one and that delivery of when he says, uh, Grant's like me, he's a digger. Um, I think it's just a great delivery, but also I agree with you that the scene, it just doesn't do enough work. Uh, yeah. so I, yeah, I agree with that. It is, the, the, I think the biggest the, thing about it is it made me play catch up. Like I, yeah. I just, it took me out of the movie cause I was like, wait, what, what, where are we? When are we? They already yeah, had the dinosaur. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that everyone that I've ever seen the film with gets turned around in the in the timeline at that part. So, I don't know. I agree with you. So, yeah. I've got a couple other cleanup things, but they're all quick. So, why don't, why don't you do a few if you have some? Yeah, mine are pretty quick as well. Though, it, this film has 
you know, a trope that I just, you know, does not sit well with me, and it's in this film. Yeah, yeah, it's the black guy dies first trope. Um, And not only does it happen, okay, not only does it happen once at the very beginning uh, when the guy gets eaten, uh, but it happens again with Samuel Jackson, and this is Samuel L. Jackson. The biggest yeah. movie star of all time. Um, he is uh, Samuel Jackson. His films have made more in the box office than any other actor ever, and he gets killed <laughs> just like you don't even see it happen. And it happens and off screen. Yeah, it happens off screen, and I just feel like the character was wasted and i don't know this was my first introduction introduction to samuel jackson and i think he does a great job and i love this character when i saw it yeah he's really good but he doesn't get a lot to work with and you know having like the two black guys that you have in the entire film both of them die is just i don't know it's (laughs) it doesn't sit well well with me and one of them samuel jackson i just it i don't know it doesn't sit well with me and it bugs me to this day I think that that sort of connects nicely with the other thing I wanted to talk about, which is the way this movie treats its uh, one lady. And there the are a couple moments. Hmm? Yeah, the one. Yeah, the, the one. only one. The yeah. only one. And there are a couple moments that like, look, I do not have. I don't know, maybe I'm just like too naive or whatever, but I didn't expect to have the couple of like woman power, girl power, feminist call outs that do happen. Um, yeah. Which were kind of nice. So the I think I wrote them down. The one was something about uh, the all of the men, all of mankind will die, and then women will rule the earth. I thought that was really yeah. nice. That line's great. Yeah. And then there was one other one. So it's when they're in the bunker down below, and they're talking yes, about going to was. meet up with Samuel Jackson's character, uh, mm-hmm. and John Hammond, you know, the old rich guy that, uh, you know, uh, the old chubby rich guy, is like, well, I should go, and you should stay, because I'm a, and you're a, uh, and she just, like, rolls her eyes, and she's like, listen, we can discuss sexism in survival scenarios when I can get back, yeah. or when I get back, yeah. That was really great. I loved that. And it's like... So they put that into the movie. They knew that that was an issue. And then they still made this, like, scientist, this professional scientist, not know what the word chaos meant. (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, you you didn't have to do this. This was an unforced error. I get that the movie's 29 years old, but it's just like, I would have forgotten it if they hadn't commented on it twice later on in the movie you know yeah and one of the things that ties in with this this is not an excuse for it because i agree with you but the chaos theory that ian malcolm is involved with is like it was a relatively like obscure branch of mathematics at the time period and it's also one of the most key and important threads of the entire book Mm -hmm. um is what goes into that and it's kind of like the thesis of the book uh to the point where the epigraphs before each chapter are ian malcolm quotes about chaos theory and so uh, i think part of what they were trying to do is a nod towards that but the problem is is like you said it give it 
it turns this moment where Ellie Sattler, who should absolutely know about chaos and just be able to pick up on what uh, Ian Malcolm is explaining, it just makes her look kind of dumb. The way that I headcanon this is that I just, uh, in my headcanon, uh, pretend like she knows exactly what he's talking about and but she's just, yeah. yeah, yeah, she's letting him mansplain it all to her. Uh, that's yeah. my headcanon. So. Yeah, I think that's a fine reading of it. Slightly undercut by her blushing by him. Yeah, I mean, it's not accurate. There, I just do it yeah. to, for my own sanity. Do you have anything else for cleanup? Yeah, so this one's just a funny one. Um, so mm-hmm. that moment where the T-Rex comes in and fights the raptors off and then roars. And then the banner comes floating down. Mm-hmm. So I went to go see this with my uncle and uh, and their family. And right at that moment, they thought that was the credits. And they just stood up and walked out of the theater. <laughs> Laters. <laughs> so that comes down. They're like, okay, it's done. And they stood up and like grabbed their stuff and walked like down the aisle. And were partway out of the theater when they realized, oh, the movie's still going. And had to like run back and sit down. And uh, it's uh, it's been a joke in our family ever since then. This would never happen with Stingers. Not in a world yeah. of Stingers. In a world of, of Marvel movies, yeah. There were, I don't think it's like a bad thing because I don't. Actually, I guess it kind of is. But there's a moment in this movie where they mention that Disneyland opened in 1956. And I don't nothing know if... worked. Hmm? Yeah. And nothing worked is the line. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what year Disneyland opened? No, I don't. Yeah, it's 1955. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this just happens to be a year that I know. So it was something that I was like, wait a minute. Why did that make it in? And I think... You could argue that maybe not everyone knows what year Disneyland opened. Obviously, only 50% of the people on this podcast knew what year it opened. But I think if you're opening a theme park, you probably have done the research and know what year it opened. Yeah, that's funny. That may, Yeah, that's funny. And then I only have one other thing, and this is actually a very good thing, which is I think this is the coolest approach to the inmost cave that I can think of. Normally, the approach to the inmost cave is something that, like, happens between characters, and it's nice and intimate, and it's, you know, as we've said before, it's a way to celebrate life before death. But the one in this movie is they listen to those dinosaurs singing. Yeah. And it is so cool. Like, it just, it is such a great idea. And I was just like, ooh, this this is a good one. Yeah, it it really is. And, uh, you know, this movie, like if you were to pull together a central thesis about what this film is kind of about, about, is that life finds a way. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think this scene is reflecting that there it's a celebration of life. And, you know, these these creatures that are alive and they can appreciate and love. And it's it's a beautiful uh, it's a beautiful thing. And uh, I love it. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything else for a cleanup, or should we move to That's it. Wrapping, this, wrapping this bad boy up? Okay, so that was Jurassic Park. Uh, I'd like to give a thanks to Evan, who we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast. This is one of his favorite movies, so I hope we did you proud. Uh, also to common or frequent listener, a friend of mine, Becca Schlossberg. This was a movie that she suggested and I did not realize that it was on HBO Max until she suggested it. So thank you, Becca. And then, of course, thank you to David Stewart, a story old friend of the pod, beta listener of the pod, who has 
been helping us out with editing for this whole season. So if we sound a little better than we did the first time, it's because David has been putting in a lot of hours, you know, <laughs> cutting out all of the silly stuff that we say. Uh, I don't think he's cut any content that I know of, but uh, he has been just tightening it up a lot, and we do appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, we've uh, we've had a few little recording disasters that uh, David's magic has fixed for us, so... Yeah, so we really, really appreciate that. And of course, thanks to everyone for listening and hanging out with us. If you want to shoot us some feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Zvazda, Z-V-A-Z-D-A. And you can find Matt at... O-R-A-Y-M-W, O-R-A-Y-M-W. And if you want to shoot us some longer form thoughts, you can do that at podcaststreamit at gmail.com. Uh, we haven't really been getting a lot of uh, like feedback for the podcast. We've been getting a lot of people reaching out, like just sort of giving their thoughts. But if we do get feedback, we can carve out future shows where we, you know, if someone has corrections that they want us to make, we'd be happy to do that. We don't want just wrong stuff floating out there. Or if people just want to give thoughts on stuff that we say that you want read over the podcast, just if you do want it read out loud, make sure you say you're fine doing that because, you know, we don't want to read anything or say anything that people intended to be private or just between the two of us. And yeah, that will do it for season two. A few programming notes. Season three, we're going to move to Amazon Prime and we're going to change up the structure of the show a little bit we're going to split it into two parts so for season three it'll be structured so that the first half of the movie where we talk about expectations or history with the movie as well as history and personnel and all all that sort of stuff we're going to do our best to keep that spoiler free and then we'll have a little bit of a break and then we'll talk about reaction and the scenes and all the normal stuff that we do so i would say we're not going to kill ourselves to keep keep it spoiler fee, spoiler free. So I'd say anyone who's like spoiler phobe level is like uh, anything below a three or whatever. You're probably going to be good to listen to that first half before you see the movie. And it's we a... thought this uh, we thought this would be a nice way to help people you know we realize that it's a lot for people to decide whether or not they want to watch a movie so we thought it would be nice to sort of give an introduction to a film and then people can decide if they want to watch it before moving on or whether they want to listen to the rest of the podcast without watching the film so we wanted to be able to give people that opportunity and we really wanted as well for part of this podcast to be giving people an opportunity to watch things that they wouldn't have watched otherwise. Mm -hmm. And so we want to lower, like if I were to name like the ultimate goal, what makes me the happiest is whenever someone says, I watched this and I wouldn't have. And so we want to lower that barrier just to make it a little bit easier for people to listen to an episode uh, and then decide based on that to go and watch something. Yep, absolutely. So that's going to be that major change. And then the other thing is I think... All of these episodes have been coming out on Tuesdays, but we generally record on Mondays. So I think for season three, we're going to switch to a Wednesday release just to give me an extra buffer so that I can make sure uh, everything's cute and have an extra day to do that. Perfect. So that's it for season two. Do you have a closing question, Maddie? 
I do. Uh, it's an obvious one. Um, okay. But I'm going to go with it. So uh, the obvious question is, what dinosaur would you want to meet? Ooh, that's not my question, and I was afraid you had mine. Um, probably a pterodactyl. There's no pterodactyls in this movie. There's I guess no it's pterodactyls hard, in I guess this it's movie. hard to do flyy dinos when you're on an island, because then they can just get out. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, when you go through and look at the map in the book, you will see there is an aviary there. Mm-hmm. So okay, uh, I just didn't get there. Yeah, the movie just doesn't uh, just doesn't deal with it. But yeah, pterodactyls are a great one, and also uh, haunt my dreams. They are they're a terrifying creature, but really great one. F- for me, this is a result of all my uh, Jurassic Park like love at that time period. Mm-hmm. The the dinosaur is called a Compsognathus, or having a more specific name of a Procompsognathus. And in the book of Jurassic Park, uh, where they don't really show up in the film at all, they show up in the book, and they are heavily involved in the video game. Just, like, tons of them all over the place. Uh, they are little dinosaurs about the size of, like, a chicken. Uh, so they're Ooh, they're just cute. teeny ones. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the video game, they swarm over you and eat you in massive packs. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, you, you run so into cute. these, and uh, you're constantly running away from compies. They're called compies as their nickname throughout all these things. And they show up in all of the films except except this first one. And in the TV show Camp Cretaceous, as well as in all the books. So uh, they show up quite frequently. If you see any of the other ones, you get those. And they're just a cute, adorable little creatures. And when there's one of them, they're just adorable and cute and friendly and nice and wonderful. And then when there's a swarm of them, then they're terrifying. So. Ooh, okay. Well, Cool. Uh, ooh, I just realized, I hope people listen to the closing question because I did not say what movie we were kicking off with for Amazon Prime. And we're going to start with Alien from, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien from 1979. Yes. So, yes. My closing question for you is I'm going to remove your, like, any ethics stops. So you're just, like, an unethical amusement park builder i'm going to bestow you with an unlimited budget oh yes what i've always wanted what amusement park would you want to build oh wow i have two things in my mind at the same time but i I think i'm going to go with a more interesting answer Mm -hmm. so my favorite tv show of all time is the good place Mm, yeah good I want to build a good place that's actually a bad place. <laughs> so, as an, as an amusement park. Uh, and this ties into one of my favorite books ever. It's called uh, Inferno, Inferno by Larry Niven and Jerry Burnell, where this uh, science fiction author uh, dies. He falls off, off a window and dies. He thinks he's been frozen and, like, brought him back as a corpsicle, but really he's dead and he's in hell uh, in Dante's Inferno. And he assumes... <laughs> He's, like, the whole time thinking that he is in a Dante's Inferno theme park in the future. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, these are very re- realistic animatronics <laughs> of the people, like, getting burned in the lava and stuff. Um, and I just adore that book so much. Uh, and the the good place I love as well. And so some kind of, like, uh, theme park that's, that's along those lines. And maybe you get people and you, like, erase their memory as they come in so they don't even know what's going on and think they're, they're dead. Uh, I don't know. It would be an awesome little theme park. Uh, completely unethical to run it. But, you know, it would be fun. That's pretty good. Um, mine is one I think that's actually 
in development or maybe it's all maybe it already exists and i want uh nintendo world and mm. i want uh like i want to be able to run across hyrule field i want to be able to oh, do great. some sword fighting with the master sword i want to be able to go mario kart racing get oh, some blue shells amazing. track down some people and i love it i love it yeah that's what can i, I tell can I tell you what I thought you were going to answer? And I think that you'll also like that idea. I thought mm-hmm, you were going to mm-hmm. a- answer a Doctor Who theme park. Uh, that was on my short list as well. Yeah, that yeah. would be very good. Doctor Who, mm-hmm. also Lord of the Rings would be oh, that would be amazing. pretty fucking yeah. great. Yeah. So, yeah. So I have heard, though, uh, apparently there is one of those. It's a place called New Zealand. Um, <laughs> so you might consider going there sometime. I don't think they so. have orcs. But I don't know. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe we should do it sometime. It'd be great. So, All right. That'll do it for us this week. Thanks so much for hanging, and we'll talk to you in several weeks. Bye. Bye.